This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. On July 18th, 64 AD, a fire broke out in the commercial district of the city of Rome. And the fire was fanned by summer winds, and so it quickly spread through the dry wooden structures of this imperial city. It consumed everything in its path for six days and seven nights, and when the blaze finally ran its course, it had left 70% of the city in smoldering ruins. When a catastrophe on that scale occurs, what do people do? Well, they want answers, and they want solutions, and they always look to the leader. In this case, it was Emperor Nero. Feeling intense pressure to do something about what had taken place, Nero looked for a scapegoat, someone to blame this disaster on, and he looked no further than to an obscure religious sect known as Christians. He blamed them. Not because they were popular and could be considered a rival to him and Rome. No, he blamed them because they were already a despised group of people. To appease the masses, Nero literally had his victims fed to the lions during giant spectacles held in the city's one remaining amphitheater. This is when government-sponsored persecution began in earnest. But there's a question that is out there. How had Christians become such a despised group of people? That didn't happen overnight. Let's back up two years to 62 AD. The Apostle Peter wrote to a group of Christians scattered about the Roman Empire in provinces that were called Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, which is modern-day Turkey. In the opening verse of his letter, he addresses these Christians as exiles. Now, throughout the letter, Peter's use of the Old Testament is frequent, suggesting he wrote to a group of people familiar with it. The term exile would have brought to mind the decades God's people spent in exile under the authority of first Assyria and then Babylon. Exiles were misfits. They worshipped a different God. They devoted themselves to different practices. They valued different things. Exiles were strange. This is how Peter addresses Christians living within the Roman Empire just two years before the great fire of Rome. Christians were despised because they didn't go with the flow. Karen Jobes in her commentary writes this. She says, because of their Christian faith, they were being marginalized by their society alienated in their relationships, and threatened with, if not experiencing, a loss of honor and socioeconomic standing 
if not worse. This is who Peter writes to. Christians who are exiles, foreigners, strangers, pilgrims, sojourners in this world. But we also know the church is a missionary community. Nowhere does the Bible advocate for Christians to form hermit societies. So how do we thread the needle? On the one hand, Christians will be marginalized because of what we believe and and how we behave. On the other hand, we are called to have some level of engagement with the world around us. How do we thread the needle? First Peter is a guidebook, a handbook, a manual on Christian living as an exile. So we're going to begin today by taking a look at how the Apostle Peter begins this letter. What is this Apostle's initial move? Knowing now what his Christians, what these Christians are facing, what they're experiencing in their societies, what is his initial move? This will be very interesting. Would you open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter? 1 Peter. And if you didn't get one last week, we have a companion devotional that we've created for you. Those should be out in the lobby there. And if you don't see it, you can ask someone at the Information Center and they'll help you find that. Meant to be read along with this and studied with this. First Peter, I want to begin in chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Here's what we're going to look at today. How the future gives us hope, how the present gives us joy, how the past gives us certainty. How the future gives us hope, how the present gives us joy, how the past gives us certainty. First, how the future gives us hope. So I want you to imagine... 
being marginalized, alienated for being a Christ follower. And one of Jesus' disciples writes to you to pastor you through your situation. What would you expect his first words to be? Don't let them treat you like that. Fight them. Or the often used platitude, this too shall pass. As if the situation will eventually go away and the skies will become clear. Isn't it noteworthy Peter's first words to this ridiculed community of Christ followers are not about their present situation. Peter's first words are not about being marginalized or alienated. They're about the future. Verses 3 through 5 are littered with references to our ultimate climactic future. Our inheritance kept in heaven. Our salvation is ready to be revealed at the parousia, the coming of Christ. Peter's first words to these ostracized believers are not about the present. They're about the future. Now, I would imagine that as devoted students of the apostles' teaching, Peter isn't just disseminating content. He's also establishing a paradigm for these believers to encourage one another. That is, when hearing that a brother or sister in Christ didn't get the job they won because of their allegiance to Christ, the encouragement wasn't, well, another job will present itself. The encouragement was, hang in there, our inheritance is kept in heaven, and it's waiting to be revealed at the coming of Jesus Christ. Peter wants to use the nature of our future to provide each other with hope in the present. See, Peter, throughout the book, creates no expectations whatsoever that their lives will get better this side of heaven. None. Social justice for these believers is an illusion. You're not going to get that from the world. There is no expectation that the marginalization will abate or the alienation will subside or the disdaining will dissolve. None. The expectation is created that the mistreatment will continue. And yet he's writing about hope. Living hope. Hope in the here and now. But tethered, tethered to not present changing circumstances, but an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading future. I like the way Juan Sanchez put it. He said, our future inheritance will not only cause our worst experiences in this life to become distant memories, it will make even the most exotic places on earth and the finest moments of our lives here pale in comparison. Bottom line, you won't remember the bad stuff. And the really good stuff will be dull in comparison. Now, who qualifies for this future? It's in verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Only the born again qualify for this future. I may be very clear about this. Born again is not a subcategory of a Christian. Born again equals 
Christian. Okay? Now, to be born at all is to be transferred from one world into another. When you were born, you were transferred from one small itty-bitty world into a very big one. When your son or daughter was born, he or she was transferred from one world into another. Spiritual birth, the kind that Peter's talking about, transfers us from one spiritual world, an itty-bitty spiritual world, into a vast spiritual world. It is the born again who qualify for this future. Has that happened to you? Let me mention a couple of signs the new birth has taken place. First, your attention is reflexively drawn to the Lord. Your attention is reflexively drawn to the Lord. When both my kids were born, hours after they were born, I would sit on the ledge of the window in our hospital room, and both would automatically turn their heads to look outside. Now, I'm told a newborn's vision is not what ours is, so it's not that they had seen some object they were interested in. But the light was. They were drawn to the light. Reflexively. The new birth produces that reflex in you. To want to turn your attention to the light. Over and over and over again in the scriptures, the Lord likens himself to light. Reflexively, your attention is drawn to the Lord. Is that true of you? Second, we crave the gospel. Nursing moms can attest better than anybody just how much newborns crave milk. At times, they can be like animals, devouring that milk. In the next chapter, Peter calls for us to crave pure spiritual milk. It's kind of a really big category. The word of God's involved in that. The grace of God is involved in that. The gospel's involved in that. Lots of things. We could probably sum it up best by what we've put on the front of our journals here. Jesus obsessed. The new birth produces in us an obsession with Jesus that is best imaged by a newborn's obsession with milk. So who who is it that has an inheritance to look forward to? The born again. Who is it that has a salvation ready to be revealed at the coming of Jesus Christ? The born again. Who is it that has cause for hope despite hardship? The born again. So the first words out of this pastor's mouth to a community of Christians marginalized by their society is about the future. Because of their future, they have hope. Now, let me tell you something. The whole course of your life is being set by what you hope in the most. The whole course of your life is set by what you hope in the most. How you experience your present is determined by what you believe about your future. A man by the name of Viktor Frankl was a Jewish doctor who was put in the death camps during World War II. He survived them, and he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And in it, he talks about noticing three basic ways people responded or handled being in the death camps. And he talks about how horrible they were. Death is everywhere. It's imminent. You were stripped of everything. And he noticed that people responded in one of three ways. Some people became very bad people. They lost all their principles. They did anything to survive. They betrayed one another. They exploited people. They just became really bad people. 
Some people responded to the suffering and imminent death by just giving up. They virtually dried up, curl up in a ball, and died. Some people became quietly heroic. They demonstrated courage. They made sacrifices. And Frankel asked, what made the difference? And his conclusion was that it depended on what your hope was. If you had a hope or meaning in life, something that you lived for that suffering and death could take away from you, then you were a goner in the death camp. If your hope was money, that was taken away from you. If you lived for family, you were a goner because your family was taken from you. If you lived for status or some job, it was taken away from you. If, if, you, if it was some utopian vision of what your country or world could be like, obviously that was taken from you. And he realized that most people did not have a hope that could stand up to death. They didn't have a hope that could overcome death. Their hope was located in this life. And Dr. Franco realized most people live for things in this life. Money and status and family and love for career, for some cause. But suffering and death, which is inevitable, will take all that away. So it makes perfect sense why Peter would talk about, first, a hope that can stand up to death. A living hope of an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Where have you located your hope? Second, how the present gives us joy. In verse 6, Peter reminds us we're to rejoice in our future despite being grieved by various trials. And then in verse 7, Peter makes an astounding statement. He says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the purpose of the trials, the purpose of the alienation, the discrimination, is to test and prove your faith so that you may receive approval at Christ's return. Genuine faith is tested faith. Therefore, present trials can be greeted with joy because trials are necessary if faith is going to have the kind of character God finds acceptable at the final judgment. The trials, the hardships, the marginalization, the alienation, the ridicule give us joy because they provide us with an opportunity for our faith to be proved genuine. You can say to yourself at the next trial, if I can get through this, holding fast to Jesus, I know my faith is authentic and that's worth celebrating because genuine faith is more valuable than riches. The imagery of refining gold is illustrative. Fire was used to distinguish true gold from counterfeit. So God uses the fires of adversity to distinguish genuine faith from a superficial confession. Now there's an interesting observation for us in the West to pluck out of here. A comfortable life is a wonderful ecosystem for counterfeit faith to hide inside. The fires of adversity are designed to burn away the ecosystem, leaving the faith exposed as either genuine or counterfeit. Genuine faith is far more valuable than a comfortable life. Now, the question is, why is your faith so important to God? Why is testing your faith so important to God? Doesn't he already know? Certainly. 
testing your faith through the fires of adversity. It's not for his sake. It's for yours. It's a mercy. It's a grace. So when the next one comes around, you can say, okay, we've got an opportunity here. We have an opportunity. Simone Weil, who lived during the first half of the 20th century, which was a devastating time to live, talks about how adversity or suffering makes God appear to be absent. Suffering or adversity makes God feel absent. Well, if that's the case, it follows to say that adversity is going to force and test your faith. Faith allows you to see God even when suffering makes him appear to be invisible. This is something the prophet Habakkuk lived through. God tells Habakkuk that he's going to raise up the Babylonians to punish his people for their wickedness. And this, of course, sets off a conversation between the prophet and God. And in processing this, Habakkuk eventually comes to this realization. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. It's almost as if the threat of the loss of material blessings and security drives him to enjoy God all the more. Because there's nothing else to rely on. See, a comfortable life can make us think we are enjoying and delighting in God himself. When all those things are doing is masking the fact that we don't. The fires of adversity are a great gift from God to reveal to us whether or not we delight and enjoy God for himself or we have ulterior motives for doing so. The fires of adversity are designed to burn away the ecosystem, leaving the faith exposed as either genuine or counterfeit. So the present circumstances of various trials give us joy because they afford us the opportunity to test the genuineness of our faith. I came across a news article written several years ago that illustrates this. The article was written about wine, winemaking. The enophiles in the room will love this. Great wines come from low-yielding vineyards planted in marginal climates on the poorest soils, is what the article says. Though hard on the vines, these tough conditions are good for the wine because the vines that are stressed must work harder to produce fruit, which leads to fewer but more concentrated and flavorful grapes. By contrast, the vines used for bulk wines have it easy. They're planted in the fertile soils in ideal climates of regions such as California's Central Valley. Such regions are great for producing tons of grapes to fill up the bulk fermentation tanks, but not at all great for producing the complex, intense flavors needed to make great wine because the vines are not stressed and the yields are way too high. Stressed Vines produce good wines. Look up here. Listen, friends, God doesn't want you to be a bulk wine. (laughs) He 
does not want you to be a bulk wine. He's looking for fine wines. Fine wines. But in order to produce the fine wine in you, the vines have to be stressed. They have to be stressed. Third, how the past gives us certainty. Present trials provide opportunity for your faith to be proved genuine. In verse 9, Peter concludes by saying the outcome of this genuine faith is salvation, which is the reason for hope in the midst of adversity that Peter established in verses 3 and 5. Now in verse 10, Peter dives into this salvation. He dives into it. He's, He's held it up there as your future hope. He's held it up there as the thing, your faith that's tested, results in Now he dives into this inheritance, this living hope, and he does so by establishing the fact that salvation is the theme of the Bible. It's the theme of the Bible. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied, here we go, concerning the salvation that is your living hope, that is the result of your tested faith, the prophets spoke about this. And you thought the salvation that we all enjoy was talked about in the New Testament. No. The prophets. So at breakneck speed, Peter has launched into the time of the Old Testament to establish the enduring credibility of this salvation, which serves as our hope. So there are four things to observe about our salvation very quickly. First, Jesus predicted it. So Peter draws our attention to this amazing fact that Christ himself, the spirit of Christ, hundreds of years before his own death and resurrection, was predicting his own death and resurrection. You see that? The spirit of Christ was at work within the prophets to predict the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The son of God has been contemplating his suffering and his death for us for centuries. You know what that means? (laughs) You were not loved just for one bloody moment in history. You have been loved For endless ages in the eternal plan of the Father and the Son. You're not loved in just one bloody moment. You have been loved for endless ages. Second, the prophets long to see it. Peter highlights the worth of our salvation, your salvation, by telling us how much the prophets long to be a part of it. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he, the Spirit of Christ, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. You know, Christ came to Isaiah 700 years before the incarnation, before Christmas, and said this, write this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So when the spirit of Christ told Isaiah to write that, Isaiah said, Oh Lord, who? Who? When? How long? How long? That searching and inquiring and longing is an echo of the tremendous worth of our salvation in the hearts of the holy men of old. 
Third, the prophets served us in it. The Lord's answer to that yearning cry of the prophets, who, when, how, is given in verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. (laughs) The Spirit of Christ said to Isaiah, Isaiah, be patient. I know you want to know who and when and how. Got to be patient. You're not serving yourself, Isaiah. You're not even serving your own generation. You're serving the people of Alliance Bible Church and hundreds of thousands of others who will live years from now. They're going to see your prophecy, Isaiah. Proof that I am who I say I am. And its truth will make its infinite value unshakable in their lives. You will not have lived in vain. Think about that. The Old Testament prophets wrote to serve you. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Zechariah, Ezekiel. The books which bear their names were written to serve you and bearing testimony to the sufferings and glories of Christ. Fourth, the angels love to look into it. After talking about this salvation at the end, it says things into which angels long to look. It doesn't mean that they're like short children in a sea of adults trying to get a glimpse of it, and they can't. That's not the sense of it. There is a passion and a drive to look into this story. The word literally means obsession. The, the angels are obsessed with this story. They're obsessed with it. Peter's point is this. If angels get excited about this, about our salvation, how much more should we? If the angels love to look at the work of God and saving sinners like us, how much more should we, who are not just onlookers, the angels are onlookers. They're not recipients of this. They're not beneficiaries of this. They're onlookers. They're just watching this unfold. They long to watch it. And you're a player in it. If they long to look at it, if they long to look at it, how much more should we who are the beneficiaries of it? Now, why is Peter seemingly digressed to talking about how the Old Testament prophets and New Testament writers have written about our salvation? Is it not a digression? Well, Peter's showing his readers who were suffering a loss of status in their society because of their allegiance to Christ, that in fact they were more privileged to be living when they were living than they could have possibly known. I mean, imagine if you're going through a hardship as intense as that. You might long for some other time. Oh, if only we could live some other time or place. And Peter's saying, oh, you are so privileged. You have no idea. You're so privileged to be where you are. We are more privileged than either the prophets of old or the angels above. Clearly, the gospel message is of great value if it is the focus of attention to the prophets of old and the angels above. Therefore, we ought to rejoice that we have obtained this message. See, Christian, your salvation was not a reluctant afterthought in the mind of God. 
It was not a reluctant afterthought in the mind of God. It's been a central story in the mind of God for centuries. And make no mistake about it, this story in the mind of God is unfolding precisely the way he wants to. The other thing that this is showing us with all the Old Testament stuff connected to the present is that God is calling the shots. He's calling the shots. And what he's calling us to is to keep rehearsing the story. Keep replaying the story. The sufferings, the glories of Christ written about from Genesis to Revelation. The story that will result in your praise and glory and honor when Jesus is revealed. You keep replaying the story. Why? Why? How does that help? How can something in the past help? In a PBS episode of Independent Lens entitled Chuck Norris versus Communism, (laughs) we see a documentary that describes the impact of Hollywood films behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, By the mid-1980s, the situation in Romania had become quite depressed. Electricity, gasoline were rationed, food was scarce. The government had stepped up surveillance by hiring more informants for the secret police. Irina Nistor was a translator who worked for the government censorship committee. She hated the job, not because she disliked translating, but because she despised the process of cutting, quote, objectionable scenes from foreign films that showed the West in a positive light. One day, a middle-aged man approached Irina and asked her for help on a translation project. And he led Irina to a secret location. He sat her down in front of a microphone and played an American movie on a small television, probably a Chuck Norris movie on a small television, and told her to translate it. And Irina spoke the translation into the microphone, and not only did she do all the male and female voices, she translated the movie in real time. From villages in the Carpathian Mountains to the streets of Bucharest, all across the country, secret gatherings began to take place. They were called video nights. The power of the video night wasn't in giving two hours of diversion to an oppressed people. The power was in that these movies revealed what they revealed about life outside Romania. An uncensored foreign film punctured holes in the Iron Curtain and allowed Romanians to peer into another world. One Romanian man said, the film changed your perspective on life. They changed what you were looking for and what you wanted. Just a few years after video nights became commonplace in Romania, the Iron Curtain fell, and the Romanians deposed their dictator. On the streets of the country's major cities, imagination won. Dreams of a different future took hold. Of course, the video night Peter wants us to watch is not of another country or an ideal version of another country. The video night Peter wants us to watch is the inheritance, the salvation, the living hope kept in heaven for you through the sufferings and glories of Christ. Meticulously documented from Genesis to Revelation. That's the video night that affords us dreams of a different future. Let's pray.
Lord, it is so hard when the present is intense for us to set our gaze on the future. I can't imagine how overwhelming that picture of the future has to be for it to overpower present circumstances. But God, this is exactly what you're trying to get us to do. You have given us in Peter's first words to these exiled Christians, you have given us hope for a future indescribable. Lord, I pray that we would calibrate how it is we're supposed to navigate as exiles in a foreign world. We might come with our own sense of how it's to be done. We need to scrap that. Your word gives us what we need. The first thing out of the gate is to be able to say, I have hope for a beautiful future because of what Jesus has done. So Lord, I pray, I pray that you would you would sear that hope onto our hearts and minds. The day of salvation is ready to be revealed at the coming of Christ. And that future changes the way we experience our present. Help us with that, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.